The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Good day. This is Mitch Winnick, and I'm co-hosting today with my good friend and fellow law professor, Michael Cohen. Stephen Wagner has the week off this week. But we're going to talk today about trade. Uh, as I usually start out, I'm the dean of Monterey College of Law and San Luis Obispo College of Law. We'll be opening up Kern County College of Law this summer. I'm interested in all areas of law, but we're fortunate to have a specialist with us today. My co-host for the ride will be Michael Cohen. Michael's a partner with the international law firm of Shepard Mullen. And Michael comes on to help us understand issues related to constitutional law that he teaches at our law school, as well as international trade and international business. And that's our focus today. Michael, welcome to the show. Good morning, Mitch. It's wonderful to be back on the air with you. And as a reminder to our listeners, you're actually joining us from Washington, D.C., aren't you? I am. I am. It's where the, the hour is, is perfect for our, for our morning broadcast. Well, today we're going to talk about trade. And before everybody has a big yawn and says, oh, forget about that, what could be interesting about world trade? That sounds like business or something boring like taxes. But in fact, world trade has rocketed right to the top of the headlines recently and is, is, a really, is going to be a critical issue in, in certainly this political administration. But, but, Michael, world trade is not a new issue, is it? No. You know, arguably, Mitch, trade is, is one of those two things that has driven at least the, uh, the, the captured recording of human history, right? You know, trade and war. Um, uh, you, you can almost t- teach history, by those two topics. You could teach it through all types of other uh, topics and events as well, but you could literally chronologically teach the history as we know it through trade or war. And, And arguably, war is usually about trade. It is literally the oldest form of um, human interaction that, that we have known. And it is, is the corner piece behind every great civilization that we encounter in history from the golden age of Athens uh, all the way through the Roman empire um, into the modern um, eras, uh, including the post-World War II era, where we here in the United States have 
inherited and then operated as a trade hegemon globally. So, and so yeah. you, you'll, you'll enjoy the fact that I, I taught a brief section on international law this past week to our spring start classes. And the two areas of law I use as my examples of international law were the law of war and law of the sea, two of the right. oldest recognized really international laws. Is that a fair statement, the oldest? Yeah, it yeah, is. It is. Take, take law of the sea for, for an example, right? You know, the, the only um, federal common law specifically carved out from the states to be exclusively in the hands of uh, uh, the federal courts in, in America. Uh, but the law of the sea itself, right, is a form of international trade law. It, it has to do with conduct and seizure and jurisdictions for what? For trade and commerce and also, you know, the protections and wars that go along with that. Um, and that's why it was so important to the Constitution when the Constitution was drafted and why law of the sea has been so important since the initial laws merchant from Venice, which governed uh, conduct and international trade across the globe through the only path that that could occur at the time, or through one path that it occurred at the time, right? The, the oceans. And the other part I like to point out is that, is that when we started to develop, and I know some people are going to say, wait a minute, this is a head scratcher. But when we started to develop laws related to internet and internet commerce, I don't think it's any surprise that the fundamental structure of how we would design a global law regulating internet commerce we went right back to the principles of the law of the sea. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and still, you know, internet commerce today is one of the most important underpinnings to international comedy and trade negotiations. We take for granted that we sort of had unlimited access to anything anybody wants to post on the internet here in America. That's not true around the world. And access... To, by, our, by, by content providers and others to any nation's internet um, is and has become one of the uh, most important underpinnings of international trade agreements. And I think we're just scratching the surface. We've yet to figure out how to deal with some of the more complex issues of international trade. Uh, we talked last week about gambling. You know, March Madness, we were talking about the laws related to gambling and whether internet gambling was affected by federal laws and and we went oh, we went down the path of describing why it is that it's if it's illegal to gamble in the United States it's just as illegal to sit in the United States and gamble using the internet although your partner may be somewhere else so we find that the aspect of international law in this case internet law intersected with federal law on the issue of gambling and what you've just pointed out, that it's going to do exactly the same thing as we continue to develop the relationships between the United right. States trade elsewhere. Uh, how a nation approaches international trade and defines its laws around that is extraordinarily important to where it stands in the, in the world's communities. You know, for, for years, there were certain what I call crossroads cities, which is so fitting, Mitch, for our international crossroads segments. I love the way you work that in there. <laughs> <laughs> there really have been. I mean, the, the crossroads cities have always enjoyed unique flourishing in, in their worlds, whether it 
it was Athens in in its original form, which was very much, uh, you, you know, a, a city on the crossroads of um, land and sea commerce, and that's what attributed to its growth. That's why all the people were there. That's why it turned itself into a democracy and decided to govern itself and came up with so many things that we still get in our Western thinking uh, today from the schools that occurred, literally the schools of philosophy that occurred all, all around Athens. It flourished because of its position as, an, as a, at the international crossroads of trade. Jerusalem, exactly the same thing. A place that... that, that um, had had no natural gravitas, putting aside all of its all of its religious underpinnings, uh, and, and 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 going back to the literal formation of the city, um, uh, it became a city of tolerance, not a city of required religions, because of its roots, because of its roots on on the path of international trade between the Middle East and the Mediterranean. Uh, and that's and a Europe. beautiful transition into because you know you talk about that uh, a culture, a country, a region flourishes and and still in many cases, such as in the terms of Greece and others, flourish to this day because of that trade. So now we're in a modern era where there's now discussion of protectionism. And doesn't that start doesn't that, create some of this stark philosophical discussion as to what is the role of a nation's economy. We have the, a current administration that's talking about things such as the difference between bilateral negotiation of trade or multilateral lateral negotiation of trade. And isn't that the modern discussion of the same issue? I'm sure someone there in Greece and Jerusalem said, I don't know, do we really want spices from that other country? Do we really care? <laughs> Yeah, and the answer was always yes, yes, because we can't grow them here in the desert, you know. <laughs> and and uh, uh, we have a lot of yes and yes to that, as does every nation. There's always something you need. Um, let's go back to your question, though, which is really a, a wonderful question. Um, all are, Mitch, and that one was right at the heart, really, of our current our current moment, right? Not our current place and time in the world, but literally our current moment. Since World War II, we, we haven't been uniform across presidencies or administrations or politics to the rest of the world, with the exception of one era area, and, and it is this. You know, our international trade policy has really, since World War II, been quite simple. Uh, to, to open up as many markets around the world for U.S. multinationals to compete as possible. Right, we we saw the world, uh, we saw ourselves benefiting from our from our own industry and our own multinationals being able to compete around the world the way that they compete here in our own domestic market. And in order to do that, right, we have exchanges or treaties with other nations that indicate, look, you let us in, we let our multinationals compete in your market, we'll let you in here. And we were kind of already doing the latter, so we were leveraging it to get the former. And, and, and embedded in all those things, I'm sure, are things, I, I don't want to go deeply into things such as taxes and tariffs yet, but, but, so, but when you talk about treaties for those who are not familiar with international law, those are many of the things that are embedded within 
when you say, well, we need treaties with other countries, but what are in those treaties related to trade? Isn't it things such as taxes, tariffs, uh, whether we're going to put limitations, things of that nature? It's, you know, for us, it has been taxes, tariffs, um, right now, internet access, Ah, and, and agriculture, and labor protections. Ah, okay. So when we enter into a, I think environmental's probably in there some. some. Some as well. And so when we enter into trade agreements, we're trying to lay the floor for our own companies to be able to compete in those foreign markets. But we're also trying to establish foreign markets that look like us, that let us export agriculture, that let us... Uh, uh, access the internet in ways that we access here, but also ways that raise the labor standards in those nations to our own nations. Um, And so we achieve a lot of uh, globalization and change to develop developing countries and, and level the playing field with developed countries so that we can, in fact, engage in what we call fair trade, which is trade on uh, fair terms. Um, protectionism is, by its own design, something different. It means to protect yourself from something you think is unfair. Um, so, it, you know, we could take uh, a, a, a real, a recent example, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP, which is something that the Obama administration uh, negotiated and kind of used as its hallmark for trade policy. That, that TPP was not as controversial um, uh, a, a measure. The TPP wasn't something that Congress split along party lines. In fact, uh, multilateral and bilateral trade agreements have longstanding been the policy of Republicans. It has, has largely been the Republicans over time who have, in essence, uh, advocated... Um, for free trade agreements in 19 countries over the past 24 years. So the TP, so the TPP, for again, for those who aren't familiar with it or weren't following, that was the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and it was a classic case of a multilateral trade agreement that was defining trade among all the countries that were involved in that, right? Right, about 11 or 12 nations, I forget which, but uh, nations that were not all in the Pacific, uh, mo- mostly nations that traded with the Pacific. So from Australia through East Asia, and then the Western North American and South American rims, including Chile, um, essentially formed a pact for a multilateral uh, floor that we would allow these things with each other. And um, uh, I can talk a little bit about that as a multilateral trade agreement and the benefits that all uh, assumed with it versus what we'll, we'll be left with in, in the bilateral world. Because this is an action where the administration took some fairly immediate uh, action uh, and completely withdrew the TPP from the congressional floor. Okay, and we'll pick that up after this break. And, and after the break, I also want to come back and talk, uh, pick back up this idea of these other aspects of trade agreements that we don't always think about. You talked about environmental laws and labor laws. So everyone's listening to Wagner and Winnick on the law. I have as my co-host today, Michael Cohen, international lawyer with Shepard Mullen. After this break, we'll continue the discussion on trade. Don't go away. 
Monterey College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law, established 44 years ago. We are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012, for more information. Beginning with the Continental Congress in 1774, America's national legislative bodies have kept records of their proceedings. Did you know that these records are available to you online for free? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Congress.gov is the official website for the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. It is published by the Library of Congress and includes the public records of the U.S. Congress, the Government Publishing Office, and the Congressional Budget Office. Remember, members of Congress work for us, and if you want to see what they're doing, go to congress.gov and watch the actual sessions of Congress, or look up any law that's being proposed. That's congress.gov, C-O-N-G-R-E-S-S dot gov. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepard Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. This is Mitchell Winnick, the President and Dean of Monterey College of Law. And I'm joined today with, as my co-host by Michael Cohen, international attorney with the law firm of Shepard Mullen. We're talking today about trade policy, and we were just talking about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and we were using that as an example to explain how multinational trade agreements apply. And whether you agreed with that one or not, I think it's critical for all of us to understand how many uh, issues get involved in a trade agreement. It is not just the simple matter of how much are we selling a product for or the flow of products from one country to another or the tariffs that we will or will not impose on that 
imported or exported products. So, so Michael, continue on a little bit about, uh, and I, I love the, the idea of using the TPP just as an example of some of the things that, that are so critical in these complicated multilateral trade agreements. Yeah, so the TPP is a, is a, is a good example um, to kind of talk about some of these issues and frame them, Mitch, because it is the one area where Trump has done something on trade. He, he's literally done nothing on all of his other, other promises. And whether he'll even be able to, who, who knows? You know, he's got Republican senators from states like Iowa and Nebraska that largely exist for food exports, right? <laughs> um, well, right? Well, if you have food exports and if you throw cotton into the mix, right. you've got the entire heartland of America that really does exist dependent on international trade. Uh, it's completely dependent on it. Completely dependent on it. California is another, uh, you know, many ways uh, with its food exports. So put, put all that aside. Talk about the TPP. because it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's the first natural experiment we have from the Trump administration. And to understand its impact, let's talk about how it came about, right? First of all, it's a multilateral pact, not a bilateral pact. And what does that mean? Well, a multilateral international trade pact or treaty involves more than two countries, more than two markets, right? A bilateral, which is what the Trump administration has indicated it would like to return to, are one-on or one-off trade agreements between one nation and one nation where you go and you negotiate with the 140 to 200 some odd nations where you may have American multinationals needing to do business, right? So, so number one, it would seem to me to be a fairly inefficient way to do business, to That's do a completely inefficient act at a time with 144 countries that each have their own interests in mind. Their own interests. Interest. What's worse about bilateral trade packs is that they... Um, they tend to leave out anybody where there is a mutual need, right? Bilateral trade packs tend to occur between somebody who needs you and somebody who doesn't. Um, and that's why we've you know, rarely had them with, with major trading partners. And second, it's harder to withdraw from a multinational trade pact, and you can put more pressure on developing nations in multilateral trade packs. So you're a developing nation in with... 11 or 12 other countries, obviously it gives them access to markets that they very likely would not have been important enough to get on their own. And then also you can bring these other standards such as environmental laws, labor laws, things like that in that helps bring up the standard of care in their country as well. That's right. And that's exactly what happened with TPP and why the administration, Republicans and Democrats, <laughs> through eight years of negotiation, um, you, you know, f felt strongly about the, the direction, if, if not um, the, the, the content itself, uh, as it came out, is always a mixed bag because it's a trade negotiation, right? But the concept of doing something in the trans-Pacific way made a, a good deal of sense to everybody. And if you look at the and nations let, that were... Let me, me derail yeah, this for just a second, because you just said that, it, it struck me that, it, is it fair to say that just the fact that all those countries were in this level of intense negotiation and dialogue about mutual benefits for those eight years, that in and of itself reaps a benefit, even if you don't get all of the specific trade terms uh, fully agree? Of course. Of course. You get 
you get to know each other. You learn that life is mutually dependent, that this world is connected, that uh, you can't stand um, on a hill and bluster and put a wall around yourself and you know just d- d- defend your border. That that's so you, just so you, not the you way. Take life your ball, when you take your ball and go home, as we would say on the playground, when you just pick up your ball and go home and decide you'll just do your own shoot around at the basket in your driveway, you really eliminate all that benefit that's been built. Whether you like the specific details, you've really set back that global dialogue. And I guess people wonder when you'll re-engage and for what purposes. The the world becomes, the the world is, is ultimately more stable when everybody's invested in it, right? Because the consequences of destabilizing it um, be, be become heightened. Um, and, uh, you know, tr- trade is, in essence, a form of positive energy in the world that is designed to lift the standard of living and lift uh, innovation for all those involved and to exclude some, uh, not only relegates our handicaps, our own economy's ability to grow um, through our multinationals um, in other markets, but uh, hurts us. It hurts us with respect to the cost of our goods. It hurts us with respect to the number of products on the shelves. You know, Americans take for granted that they walk into a 7-Eleven or a convenience store attached to a gasoline station and, and literally look at about 30 feet of uh, drink space, right? Coolers uh, with, you know, 15 different kinds of water and 30 different kinds of sports drinks and, you know, 50 different kinds of sodas. Uh, that's not the way it is in the rest of the world. Those kinds of choices come from trade packs. They come from uh, a, a mutual dependency and uh, an open, what I'll call an open market system. No markets are free. All markets are regulated in some respects and should be to protect. So we can insert this one little point because I don't think we'll spend a lot of time on, on taxes and tariffs. But but when you're as I visualized what you were just describing is you walk into almost anything, whether it's a sporting goods store or a clothing store or a food store. And we have come to depend on those type of selections, <clears throat> whereas on the face of it to just say, well, we're going to protect the Americans by putting a, a, a wall of tariff at our border, a 20% surcharge, a 30% surcharge. Therefore, if you want to bring your products to the United States, you must pay a surcharge to do it. That's really a consumer tax, isn't it? Is that an unfair way to... It's exactly what it is. It's a, it's a consumer tax that does two things. It raises the cost of goods and it limits the number of goods that are available. Uh, it, it, it's just that simple. You know, our entire economy is built on an, on innovation and lowering price, right? We, we foster competition in order to create innovation and lower costs because we believe that's good for consumers, ultimately, and the American consumer in particular. Uh, and anytime you have to erect a tariff to, to uh, raise the price of goods, being imported, uh, you're limiting choice and raising the cost. 
Um, and I assume we, you're also raising the, the likelihood that when you then shift back, as we talked about, having the entire heartland of America dependent on exporting food goods, food products, you know, grain, cotton, things of that nature, uh, the history of trade negotiation is that if I throw a 20% import tax on your product, it would be pretty ridiculous to think I'm not going to end up with a 20% tariff on my product I'm trying to sell to the other country. Well, that's precisely right. And that's what people mean, Mitch, when they talk about trade wars. And so, you, you know, you got to ask yourself the question, how big am I? How much do I matter? Um, you know, can we afford a trade war with China? Who wins that trade war at the end of the day? Why do we think and why does the Trump administration think it wins that war? To close off our own borders to our own trade partners, we have kind of, you know... <laughs> Over the years, we have been such a hegemon in the world of international trade that we have been looked to, really, as the stable market leader for progress. Um, that's not true any longer. Uh, and it's not true, uh, not as a result of uh, our, our own market circumstances. It's literally not true because one man was elected and said he doesn't want to be and has started to retract from the marketplace. Well, who fills that void? China. And they're doing it. They're doing it in speeches in Europe. They're doing it in speeches in Mexico. They're buying in all of those countries. If, if we have uh, uh, essentially abandon the manufacturing in North America that we have achieved in Canada and, and Mexico through NAFTA, who's gonna, what, is that manufacturing going to go away? Is, are, are Canada and Mexico going to stand there idle and say, oh my gosh, United States, we need you so much. Please come back. We'll do anything. We'll pay for your wall. No. China's going to fill that manufacturing. And, and I, It's going to fill it in a heartbeat, and it's already doing it. Absolutely. And, and I've talked to individuals. I said, you know, it's, it's ironic to me <clears throat> that we would pick that type of a fight, essentially a trade fight with Mexico, with, you know, as I've said many times in this show, I'm from Texas, and I know where Texas cotton goes. Texas cotton is not ginned in Texas anymore. Texas cotton goes across the border into Mexico, gets ginned, turned into cloth, gets turned into blue jeans and t-shirts, and comes right back onto our shelves in Texas. Yeah. And if we don't have that type of bilateral trade, that cotton doesn't get from the field back onto the shelf as blue jeans and t-shirts. That's right. And a lot of our cars go down to Mexico that are made here in America. And a lot of our food goes down to Mexico. Um, and some of their food comes in. It's, it's, a, it's, a, very, it's a very, very mixed bag. And, um, you know, it, it, it's somewhat frustrating to listen to the pulpit and a guy just say, this is a bad deal, this is a good deal, and talk in these terms. Uh, uh, you know, and I, well, I'll just, I'll just say it. You know, uh, we're, we're talking about a guy that was handed $15 million, if not more, by his dad to start his first business, went belly up, has been bankrupt 12 times, has never been successful in business other than he's owed so much through failed enterprises that banks keep him going. And, and now he's going to talk about what's a good deal or a bad deal, uh, you know, o over 50 years of trade policy since post-World War II and stands to substantially injure that. It, it, it really is going to matter in a whole lot of ways to this nation. And much of our growth and prosperity, including current growth and, and prosperity, has come from our role in the international trade community. And to all of a sudden 
completely reverse that role is going to create a different America in a lot of ways if it happens. And that's a big if. It really is. Um, so one would assume that, that, so you've talked about all these trade issues. We're going to have, uh, the, you know, corporate America is going to weigh in once we start evaluating the economic cost of protectionism versus multilateral trade. And so I, I think it's going to be a fascinating next step because I think you're exactly right. It can't just be one way. Uh, reversing 20, 30, 40 years of American growth that has been fundamentally trade-driven is going to bring back to the table not just the politicians but the you know, corporate interests, uh, environmental interests, labor law interests. And, and we just, I think, I hope we just need to be patient to wait for the opportunity to those more sensible voices to be back at the table so that we can get those more integrated into our, our trade policies. Uh, when we come back, Michael, I want to expand and talk back, talk some more about something you touched on that I think is going to be critical in understanding trade. And that's, and that's the other things that are involved in trade policy, such as environmental law, yep. labor laws, and things of that nature. And there's what we talk about some you know, geopolitical aspects of, of trade that you also touched on, the benefits of when you get 12, 14, 20 countries at the table to, to talk about uh, mutual, mutual relationships around trade and policies. So I, I hope what we've done is, we've, as people have listened to this, and when we come back after the break, we talk more about it, that they start to see that this isn't that boring old course in college where you said, oh, I don't want to go talk about economics or trade. I mean, it's fundamental to virtually everything we're trying to negotiate as a country. You're it's listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. I'm joined by Michael Cohen. We're talking about trade and U.S. trade policy. Don't go away. We'll be right back. If you've been considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. The San Luis Obispo College of Law's campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy LaRiviere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Did you ever wonder what is the basis of international law? Where would I even go to look up international laws? This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. The database also indicates which countries have signed, ratified, or lodged objections to the treaties. These legal agreements are the basis of international law. They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, 
and the law of the sea. Lately, we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, go to treaties.un.org. That is treaties.un.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. This is Mitch Winnick, the President and Dean of Monterey College of Law. I'm joined today by my co-host, Michael Cohen, the international lawyer from Shepard Mullen. He's also a constitutional law professor at Monterey College of Law. My regular co-host, Stephen Wagner, has not gone away. He just has the week off. So Michael has stepped in, and we've had a robust discussion about trade. And and Michael, we were, we're talking about the the economic consequences of trade, but we also had touched before, and I want to come back to this question of some of the other aspects that become so valuable in trade. And and let me just frame this question for you. We talked about labor law, and we've heard about child labor. And I could see where it's difficult to compete economically if you're trying to protect American workers and protect American manufacturers. And we're, we're we're making a product and we've got labor laws and environmental laws that are in, embedded within the cost of doing business and we're trying to compete with a similar product in which there may be none of those protections in another country. So doesn't that come into play in all of this? And when we want to talk about protecting American workers, doesn't the, the addition of trade negotiations help that, not hurt that? <clears throat> well, y- yes, yes, and yes. It, it's, it's a massive factor. It, uh, uh, so and let's just take it with a real life example, uh, going back to the Trans Pacific Partnership. The, the most important, arguably, the most important developing nation in manufacturing right now, i.e., the nation that is, you know, creating its its new mark in the world through manufacturing and being the low cost producer, is Vietnam. Vietnam's economy is transforming the same way that uh, South Korea did and that China did. Um, and Vietnam, like China, right, is um, uh, a nation, and, uh, well, South Korea is different, but uh, China and Vietnam don't have labor unions. They don't have um, uh, uh, the type of labor laws and standards that we do in the United States. China has gotten closer as it's developed, but Vietnam certainly was far away. In fact, Vietnam... Uh, is and was um, a nation that is largely com- uh, consists of forced labor, For, not not just child labor. By by the way, Mitch, forced labor across every demographic and every gender. 
um, you know, an- another way to, uh, to talk about forced labor is to use the word slave labor. And that's really uh, an accurate terminology when somebody is told what job they have to do and when they have to be there and how they have to do it um, and how much they're going to be paid, if anything, for it. Uh, v- Vietnam has been famous for that uh, historically. The Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was a, a multi, again, a multilateral treaty with, with Chile and Mexico, um, the United States, Canada, on the, on the western or the eastern rim of the Pacific, um, uh, for, uh, with nations from Australia all, all the way up through Korea, um, imposed labor standards on Vietnam. It imposed labor standards on Vietnam. Uh, uh, that were significant, standards where Vietnam had to acknowledge and allow labor unions to organize, um, had to uh, create laws around labor unions that would allow them to at least get seats to say that they would flourish would be an overstatement, but to just uh, uh, permit them at all, to permit labor to organize at all in some nonviolent way that had economic benefit was a a start. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so we did that. Why? Well, not because we're hugely altruistic and we believe in workers' rights. I'd like to think we do believe in those kinds of things, but nothing in the real world, I think, happens through altruism, an uh, unfortunate uh, side event of human, human history. But things do happen for economics, right? And so when we are competing, when we have fair labor standards or what we would call fair labor standards for our own workers, and we're competing with a nation that doesn't, one of the goals in international pacts is to impose those same standards on that nation to level the costs. And we were able to do that on Vietnam, not because it was a bilateral tra- treaty, but because it was a multilateral treaty, where we literally took two continents of markets and said to Vietnam, hey, you want to trade with these two continents, then you have to impose labor standards and bring your labor standards up to snuff and people are looking, and people are watching, and your commitment in this pact is conditioned on it. You know, nations change their behavior when that occurs, and Vietnam was on their way to doing that. Um, uh, when you pull out, Viet, you know, you're going to be competing with something worse. You're going to be competing with the forced labor that existed, which is a lower cost of labor in Vietnam than one that would have been opposed through the TPP. Well, so here, here's here's a brief. I'm gonna I'm gonna offer you a little brief ray of hope here in this negotiation, of uh, of the TPP and whether it could ever come back. So we we heard this week that there'll be a new resident in the West Wing of the White House, and when Ivanka Trump moves in, as they've said, she's been granted an office. She comes with an experience of having brought many of her own products from China and Vietnam. And so perhaps she'll bring that experience into the policy discussions. What do you think? I almost <laughs> wish that that, that, that happens. I, in some ways, she's had a more successful business than any of her father's. Uh-huh. The banks own literally everything he's ever done, and he's never succeeded at anything in business. So the, the, she has actually, and, and she's had to deal with an international community, not a, not a real estate community. So uh, w- one that uh, is, is tied to exports and imports is uh, what I mean by that, Mitch. And so in, in some ways, may, maybe she will see a solution. 
Um, I don't know. There's one other thing that I wanted to mention about the TPP that's really important that I should. If you look at what we were doing with the TPP, it was more than just trade. Whose sphere of influence is Asia? China's. Sure, sure. We literally got Japan, the third largest market in the world, South Korea, Vietnam, Malaysia. We took all of the manufacturing nations outside of China and allied them with our own economic interests and our own economy instead of China's. So as we leave, what happens? Well, China's not only building a giant military base right off the islands of Japan, taking over all of the seas again, right? But it's now going to take over trade leadership. the, 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 The nations that we wanted to be codependent with us on trade will become dependent on China from, from, for trade and capital. Uh, again, you know, who, who wins the war? By protectionism. When, when there is an arguably, when there is a market that is arguably five times your size, ready to assume leadership in world trade, how do you benefit your own nation by withdrawing from over half century of successful free trade policy? I just don't get it. So let me shift one, because same conversation, but just I want to bring one other thing up that's been in the news that I think is, has a similar impact, but it's a slightly different flavor of it. So we've heard talk of the G20 recently, and we, we've heard that the United States, who's been a major player, and so G20 is a, a, a working group. So they, it's not a treaty in and of itself. It's a, a combination of 20 countries India, Argentina, Australia, Brazil, Canada, China, France, Germany, Indonesia, Italy, Japan, South Korea, Mexico, Russia, Saudi Arabia, South Africa, Turkey, the United Kingdom, the United States, and the EU. All right, so there's, there's the G20. So how does an organization like that play a role in these discussions we've just been having about multilateral and multi-country uh, negotiations and trade. It, it plays a critical role. You know, the G20 is really what you would call Western economies, right? and 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 they kind of came and coalesced together through years of of invitation and trial and error to say, hey, we we we've all concluded economically that we matter to each other, and it's important for us to be together. You know, nobody forced these G20 nations to be together. They concluded from their own experience and history that they're all mutually benefited by getting together and talking about trade policies. And that's what they do. They talk about trade policies. And then what happens is direction take, takes place, right? That the nations go back to their respective governments and direction occurs. And then they hammer out trade pacts that, uh, that, that can occur, Mitch, through organizations like the World Trade Organization, the WTO, which also has a trade settlement dispute arm. Um, uh, or they can materialize into other multilateral or bilateral pacts. Uh, but it is a, a form of informal recognition that we all matter to each other, we're all in this together, we all need each other's economies, and we all have to find a way to make this work. And we can come together in ways and talk openly and candidly about what's not working. Um, what doesn't work is to simply turn your back on it and pretend that none of it matters and that you can be fine without any of those people and tell them all to pound sand. And that's literally what Trump did to the G20 recently. 
Um, well, I guess they've been negotiating on a on free trade language that has been, as you've talked about, developed out of these 20 countries. It was a fundamental premise of of moving forward on many of these multilateral pacts. And the United States, I guess, again, just picked up its ball, went home and said, we're not going to do that. We made a fortune in this country selling everything we invented and made for 200 and some odd years, mostly to Europeans. We fought a war to be able to charge what we wanted for that, <laughs> right? Right, right. <laughs> and then we made a fortune doing it. And to all of a sudden go to all those people and say, we don't care whether you buy a single thing we ever make. <clears throat> and we don't care if we ever see anything you ever make in our country is, uh, I, it's insane. I, I, ha I just have no other way to put it. It's absolutely insane. So one of the other things we should suggest that people keep an eye on is that uh, Trump has nominated a U.S. trade representative, uh, Robert Lighthizer, and he's not yet been confirmed. So it gets lost a little in the, the other confirmation hearings, but but if someone's interested in the topics we're ta we're talking about, they should probably pay attention to that confirmation process, shouldn't they? Yeah, they should. They should also go to the Department of Commerce's website, and and what you'll what you'll see in the front is uh, somebody who is a cabinet member, and then a whole bunch of blank pictures where it says position vacant. And that, that's really what Trump is doing in Washington right now. He's crippling the government in every area where he feels there's been a problem, and that's every area um, uh, to, to him. So, uh, you know, n n my point being, Mitch, not only should people be paying attention to confirmation hearings that are high profile, people should care that there are no confirmation hearings and no appointments for all of the you know, secondary, third level appointments that are necessary to, to run a government. You can't cut the Department of Commerce by 40% and expect to maintain a, a position as the hegemon of international trade globally. You, you can't cut the State Department by 37%, not hire anybody under Rex, um, the, the, the Secretary of State, and expect the United States to go about its um, leadership role. Uh, uh, in international trade. And by the way, that leadership role has done more to protect American workers and American businesses than almost anything we have done uh, po politically or, or militarily uh, uh, since, world, since World War II. So I think you, as, we, as we close out the section today, we'll really circle right back around to where you started. The, the two oldest laws we talked about were the laws of war and the law of the sea. And you made that uh, fascinating opening comparison to say that most wars have started over trade, not over other factors. And so it's, it's, you started the conversation there, really wrapping up and ending the conversation there as well, because if we don't have a vibrant and active trade policy and discussion, this built defense then brings us back to a discussion of war. So, Michael, thank you for being on. Uh, as always, it's been fascinating. Everyone's been listening to Wagner and Winnick on the law. My guest today has been Michael Cohen, international lawyer with Shepard Mullen. Uh, a reminder that you can hear an archive of today's program at voiceamerica.com business channel and on wagnerandwinnick.com. Until next week, 
If you don't know the law, know a lawyer. I never finished college. I had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people. But I didn't know that I could go to law school without a four-year degree. I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child. So quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandy Luis and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu. It is one thing to argue with your friends at the bar, but have you ever wondered what it would be like to argue in front of the United States Supreme Court? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Oye.org, spelled O-Y-E-Z dot O-R-G, is a website published by the Free Law Project at Chicago Kent School of Law. You can go to Oye.org and listen to 60 years of actual oral arguments at the United States Supreme Court. Written summaries are provided for cases that go all the way back to 1789. OEA.org also provides biographical information on every United States Supreme Court justice and offers an online tour of the Supreme Court building. Go to OEA.org to see if you have what it takes to present a winning argument. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepard Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give clients first awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N.com. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 